Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Anthropology on the New Books Podcast Network. I'm Jacob Doherty, the host for this episode. Today, we're talking to Rama Saladyang, lecturer in African Studies and International Development at the University of Edinburgh, and co-editor with Andrea O'Reilly of the new anthology Feminist Parenting, Perspectives from Africa and Beyond, published in 2020 by Demita Press. This book brings together first-person narratives on the meanings and practices of feminist parenting in different socioeconomic, cultural, and political contexts to think about the possibility of parenting beyond the hegemony of Western models. Later in the episode, we'll hear from some of the contributors to the collection, but to introduce the project, I'm delighted to be joined by Rama Salajeng. Rama, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Jacob. It's a pleasure. By way of starting the conversation, could you tell me a bit about yourself, your academic background and your areas of research? Yes, I am a lecturer at the Center of African Studies in the University of Edinburgh. I am also uh, a member of Gender Ed, which is a network of researchers focusing on gender and sexuality in the university and an affiliate of the Center for Research on Family and Relationships, also at the University of Edinburgh. So my background is uh, that I'm coming more from uh, international development, gender and political science. And my research, my main research focus is in agrarian political economy, uh, gender and development. And uh, most recently, I have really started working on African feminism. And as you know, I am also a mother to a, to a three-year-old. So can you say a bit about the origins of this project and how the authors came together and why parenting was the theme that, that you gathered around? Well, this book is um, really the result of three years of networking, collaborating, and connecting with uh, 29 other parents or children of feminist parents of all genders. And some of us are academics or uh, industrial professionals, activists or students. So we really thought it was a timely initiative because we were all really trying to come to terms or trying to reconcile our feminist activism with our with other aspects of our life. So we were interested in trying to use our lives as a source and a resource to inform our feminist activism. So in this book, we talk about the challenges, the dilemmas, the promises and the compromises that uh, we had trying to parent in a feminist way and also trying to reconcile this with our different and intersecting gender, sexual Uh, religious, cultural identities, and also location. So we were interested to to know and to think, reflect about what it means to be a parent in theory and in practice. So we are coming from different uh, uh, geographical um, locations. Some of us are are from Africa or its diaspora. Some of us are uh, from Asia. Uh, we also have uh, South America uh, represented, as well as Western Europe. So, in this book, we really 
argue that it is necessary to reclaim parenting as a political terrain for social transformation. We believe that social transfer, societal change starts at home, but it does extend far beyond it. The main genre in the anthology is first-person essays. Why did you decide to use that form, and what contribution do you think that makes to feminist scholarship? Well, we thought it was really faithful to feminist and decolonial methodologies to start with, because, as you know, personal narratives are really um, something central in uh, African traditions of storytelling. Uh, And also they seek to recognize our agencies as parents, as feminist parents, and also that of um, uh, feminist children. So we try to, in this book, we try to recognize lived experience as a valid and prime source of knowledge on our uh, parenting. So these uh, first-person essays allow us to embrace the complexity of uh, the practice of feminist parenting in different social, cultural, and political contexts, but also allow us to accommodate and um, uh, consider consider a wide range of viewpoints, whether we are talking about and, and identities and practices, whether uh, we are talking about queer uh, feminisms, Islamic feminisms, ecological uh, ideologies, radical or liberal feminism. So all these uh, views worldviews and ideologies are represented in the book. And also, we are also trying to um, explore alternative ways of parenting, not only through birthing, but also adoption, fostering, or just caring for significant others. What do you think have been some of the main assumptions or oversights of mainstream Eurocentric feminist discussions of parenting that the collection speaks back to? I think the debate really encompasses the feminist parenting literature. It's really a debate that is uh, pervasive, that exists in African studies, if we want to take this example, or in international development, where there is a tendency to believe that theorizing about others, uh, theorizing about um, or pretending to universalism is um, really the parti pris or the chasse gardée of, uh, of uh, Western scholars. So in the literature on uh, feminist parenting, which has really uh, developed in the last two decades, we can say that uh, it has been enriched by uh, the contributions of uh, famous scholars such as Adrienne Rich, um, uh, Maureen Reddy. Uh, sorry, can I, can I um, take this sentence? So the literature of feminist on feminist parenting has really been enriched by uh, the rich uh, contributions of Adrienne Rich, Andrea O'Reilly, who is uh, my uh, co-editor in this book. We also have um, uh, Fiona, Joy, Fiona Joy Green, for instance, and it's really recently that we have heard voices from Africa or from non-Western locations. For instance, uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adeshie, who wrote... Um, what, uh, who wrote um, Dear Ideawale. We also have Oyeronke Oyewumi, who uh, wrote the famous, uh, famous book, What Gender is Motherhood? And we also have voices of parents, especially in um, America and uh, uh, South Africa, uh, fathers who have started theorizing uh, what it means to be a, a man and a caring father, away from the dominant tropes 
of violent uh, black male, black parents, etc. So theorizing uh, in this book is something we consider as a potential avenue for decolonizing. It means we are trying to resist the essentialization of global South women or African or diasporic women. How do we do this? We are trying to compare what it means to be a parent in Senegal, in Dakar, what it means to be a parent in Johannesburg, in uh, Pakistan, in uh, you know, in uh, Germany, in Paris, in uh, uh, various locations to, to try and compare these experiences to see what are the commonalities what are the differences, and how and what can we learn from each other. So in this book, we acknowledge that simply claimed to uh, knowledge are also claims to power. And we try to really uh, have this decolonial perspective in order to enrich the current state of the literature. So you're just getting at this um, in my my next question, which has to do with the coloniality of gender. And in the introduction, you offer this really um, powerful genealogy of African feminisms and situate the book within these different um, traditions in African feminism. So can you say a little bit about how the coloniality of gender is manifest um, in contemporary discussions of gender in Africa and and how the book tries to break with that? Yes, I think the coloniality of uh, gender is a a term that was coined by uh, Maria Lugones, a decolonial feminist, is something that is not only, as I said, uh, uh, present in uh, African studies, but also in gender and development studies literature. But when it comes to the uh, specific uh, topic of African feminisms, when I was growing up, I was really inspired by all these women writers, strong women characters, whether it is Maria Mabar, uh, Bucci Emecheta, uh, Bessie Head, Nawal El Sadawi, Ama Ata Aido, Titsi Dangaremba, all of them were really um, inspiring in the sense that the characters that they had were not the typical uh, submissive uh, women that our patriarchal cultures praise. So I was, on the other hand, really surprised not to 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 see this represented in the academic scholarship, where there was really a domination of uh, production from Western Europe and uh, America. So, and this is not—I am not the first one to make this uh, to, to 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 make this uh, statement. In her book, What Gender is Motherhood, is stating that, in fact, there is very little feminist research on the continent that can tell us about indigenous constructions of motherhood. Because our scholars, African scholars, take their funds, concepts, and cues from Western feminist research. So it is uh, necessary to, um, it, it, was, it is necessary actually to acknowledge the uh, intellectual and emotional labor that African feminists has, have put into contesting the uh, domination of uh, the feminist scholarship uh, and also to, to, to recognize that difference and context matter because the issues that we are seeking to address when we are uh, in our various uh, feminist struggles these issues, whether it is sexism, domination, patriarchies, oppressions and inequalities, they are really daughters of their time, but also daughters of their social context, social structures that engendered them. 
that's the reason why we have, for instance, the seminal text of uh, Chandra Mohanty, who was talking about against the essentialization of uh, Afri- of uh, global south or African women. We have um, Aifi Amajume, who was talking about male, who, who wrote the book Male Daughters, Female Husband, in which she is claiming that gender is something fluid. It's not as fixed or binary than we might uh, than uh, it's not as fixed that it ha- as conceptualized in some literature. Oyeronke Oyewumi also um, has made really great um, contribution to the topic when she uh, she proposed that maybe age and seniority are more important uh, organizing principle than uh, sex or gender before uh, in pre-colonial African society. And then there had been also other authors. So West African scholars have really been at the vanguard of this contestation. We have had Bibi Bakari Yusuf, for instance, who has also made significant contribution. Ama, uh, Mama, Amina Mama, Aisha Imam, Fatuso, all of them have really contributed to uh, contesting the invisibilization or silencing of feminist scholarship on this topic. And even when we look at uh, uh, when you look at what is happening in uh, in the U.S. right now, we have had some books by Black African uh, feminist scholars, Afro American feminist scholars, who are contesting the whiteness of the scholarship on motherhood. Nefertiti Austin is one of these. We also have Mickey Kendall, who wrote the book uh, Hood Feminism to talk about, uh, you know, the intersectionality of uh, issues that mothers are seeking to address. We also have Danny McLean, who wrote the book uh, We Leave for the We, and Loretta Ross, for instance, who wrote the book Reproductive Justice. So I think that's where we are coming from. And uh, I think those are contemporary debates that are really daughters of their time when you see what is making the headlines right now with anti-racist and anti-sexism. Uh, debate. I think it's really um, a good time to be alive. How how did the process of collaborating to create the book influence the ways that you think about and engage in parenting yourself? Well, it is. I think it has. It has led me not only the process of working on this book, but uh, the awakening. My intellectual awakening and the, my feminist awakening has taught me that I am standing on the shoulders of giants. I and all the people who contributed in this book have learned really great lessons from uh, uh, feminist scholars, even feminists who, who, who are not academics, scholar activists, feminists who, who do not theorize, but who have who have so rich who have lived so many rich lives and have learned from their foremothers and you know ancestors who have um, blazed the blazed the trail so what i have learned is that it is important to really to really understand our role as parent as more as a as a role which is one of community building which is beyond uh, the family. It is also understanding that parenting is not the sum 
of mothering and fathering. It is an action verb. It, it, it makes me realize that the, the powers that we have in our hands as mothers, fathers, and parents in public life, we are leaders. And we have a role to play in uh, community building. We have a role to play in, in society. And even when I take the, the example of uh, the Senegalese society, there are these figures who, who, who might not have actually mothered or given birth, but who are playing this role in society. They are called Bajanugor. I think it would really be a good comparison with um, uh, Patricia Il-Collins' notion of uh, uh, mothering, mothering the mind. So people who are there to, to, to bear witness, but also to, to, trans, to, to transfer skills, knowledge, and also to protect. So when I talk about parenting, it's not just the business of the father and the mother. It is the business of all, all the people in the society. So uh, when I use my Wolof language, for instance, when I talk about juh, it's more than being pregnant or delivering a child. It's also about educating, take, taking care of, nurturing, cuddling, all of this. So I think it is important. It is an important lesson that I have learned. And actually, the current COVID crisis is showing us that really it does take a village to 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 raise a child, and it does take a village to to come uh, to to fight against uh, the intersectional issues that we have right now. I think we'll come back to the to COVID a little bit to talk about a piece that you wrote um, for Corona Times. But uh, maybe now we can turn to your contribution to the anthology. In addition to the introduction is your essay, A Young Woman's Voice Does Not Break, It Grows Firmer. Mm-hmm. And this chapter moves back and forth to weave together the personal and the historical and shows how colonialism shaped everyday gender relations and coloniality continues to. Can you say, about, can you say something about how your return to Senegal after years away for your education informed the way that you understood these dynamics and made them newly visible to you? Yes, I would say that um, the whole time I, I was growing up, maybe because I was still a child, I was still being uh, parented, so to speak, I was really uh, blind or really not uh, conscious of the gender dynamics and the power dynamics that were around me. But I can say I was a really early feminist. I was, <laughs> I share an anecdote in the book on how I challenged uh, classmate uh, as early as uh, 11 um, when he was making sexist comments. But it took me uh, to go to France to study uh, and also a personal experience in my family to realize that, in fact, uh, men and women are not equal as the constitution, the Senegalese constitution states it. Uh, and also to realize that, in fact, all the all the laws that we have uh, whether it is the family law, whether it is the gender, the, the land law, all of them uh, which we have inherited from uh, whether colonialism or uh, customary laws ha- are really um, gender blind or are really patriarchal, if I can say. They discriminate against women. They don't place them at the same, on the same, uh, you know, uh, uh, women are not at the same level of equality as men. So I realized that when uh, when I was back uh, in Senegal, the way in which I was suddenly 
perceived as a foreigner by some just because I stood my ground, just because I decided that um, it was not fair for to have to be second citizens or second class citizens, and that actually uh, we were entitled the same rights and the same obligations, okay, but the same rights as our male counterparts. So it uh, it is with coming back home that I learned really to be more active in uh, feminist spaces, that I read more feminist books, that I was also more conscious about the things that were happening around me and also how my mom and others in society sheltered us actually and how they inspired us just by living, by becoming, by embodying their feminist practice. Yeah, you're right in the, that uh, your mom is your inspiration for your feminist practice because of how she embodies power and resilience and courage. Uh, and at the same time, you criticize some of the ways that the idea of sacrifice worked in defining women's success. Can you say a bit about um, how your, your mom and women of her generation took on this idea of sacrifice and what turning away from that has meant for you? Yes, actually, in Senegal, you know, the cultural values that we have, and I think one of the other authors, which is Tukulak, has also very well described this. And also the men in the book, the Senegalese men, fathers in the book, have also talked about it. It's the ways in which there seem to be double standards for men and for women uh, when it comes to gender norms, for what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. So, uh uh, women in Senegalese society are expected to be uh, really uh, submissive, obedient, uh, to take care of the the family and the community, to have this nurturing role. Whereas for men, for them to be considered as big men, they have to be assertive, they have to uh, accumulate uh, wives and also accumulate money. So it's more about power. Whereas for women, it's more about silence and uh, shrinking themselves. So um, I was really, I was really uh, growing up. I realized that my mom was in fact a concentré of uh, power, determination, resilience as well, because um, despite the life adventures or experiences that she has had, she has always stood by us, defended us, and so on. But at the same time. I could I could see um, the discourses that she, she had for us. She would always tell us that for you to succeed in your life, you have to make a lot of sacrifices for your family. That that's where you will uh, uh, um, see yourself as accomplished. And in fact, it was a discourse that was not only my mom's, but also uh, replete in the Senegalese society. In that you could have all the professional. Uh, achievement or success that you want, but if you were not married, for instance, you were not considered successful. So the meaning of success even uh, was really, there was no consensus of on what it meant. So that's when I started challenging all of this. My mom, uh, her career has uh, really suffered from uh, her trying to meet these expectations, social expectations. And I decided that that would not be me. For me to be happy and for my family to be happy, I needed also to achieve my own goals, to live for myself, and also to be a role model for my for my kid. I didn't want them to live in the shadow of someone else. You, you know, we have this expression in French, which is derrière chaque grand homme, il y a une femme. Behind every great man, there is a woman. I don't think I don't think they should be behind 
I don't think so. And I, in the in in the introduction, I refer to a powerful uh, quote by Pumla Dineo Gola, who is a South African feminist, who has also written a powerful essay about um, mothering uh, and uh, celebrating mothering. So I will just cite the quote that she says that he, she used. She's saying that uh, her friend Holiswa uh, used the quote. My baby has a life and will have a bigger life. I have a life. We are building our lives together. She's not my life I am not, and I am not hers. I have a great life that I have worked quite hard to design, just as it is. I have no intention of giving it up. It is a relationship of love and nurturing and guidance and responsibility. And yes, there will be sacrifice, as there should be. But I will not sacrifice myself to motherhood. It would be a horrible thing to do to myself and an injustice to my child. So I will leave you with that quote on this question. So how did how did having an African feminist perspective help you when you were navigating your own pregnancy and the birth of uh, your daughter? And how, how did that experience change your view on African feminism reciprocally? Okay, so to me, that that was the main the main literature, as I mentioned, that I came across, uh, whether it is from Andrea O'Reilly, Adrian Rich, all these uh, great literature were either considering feminist mothering or feminist uh, fathering, whether it is um, the South Africans that I mentioned. So it was rare to come across. There were literature about feminist parenting as a whole. But I think this African experience or growing up in Senegal allowed me to understand that parenting is not just the sum of mothering and fathering. It was more than that. And there is a role for the community to play because it's especially when I came here and became a mom, I realized that uh, how I was, there was an ontological different, difference between how I imagined parenting and how I was uh, parenting in practice uh, because I didn't have the same support system that you would have in Senegal, for instance. And even if you use the wall of language, when you say parenting, it's more than just being pregnant. It's more than just delivering the kid. It's also uh, the whole vocabulary, vocabulary is around uh, educating, taking care of, uh, cuddling. So parents include senior relatives, grandparents, uncles, you know, namesake. The namesake, for instance, is uh, someone who would have a, a really foundational role in the, kids, in the children's life uh, during their whole life. So, and even being a mom, there were things that I was told not to do, things how I should wear, how I should dress, how I should behave myself. And all this was supposed to have an effect on the kid, on the kid's behavior. For instance, if a, could, if a kid is well behaved, in brackets, in Senegal, they said it's because she has a good mom. But when it's the opposite, they said uh, it's also because of the mom, but she was not a good mom. So everything really, the vocabulary contributes to exonerate the father from any type of responsibility. So becoming a mom, I decided, becoming a parent, we decided, my husband has also written a chapter in the, in the anthology. We decided that it was just 
it was uh, our choice to start with. And we also wanted to embrace the positive values that were uh, that existed in our uh, different cultures. Because it's not all uh, gloom and doom. We have really positive values around mothering uh, in, and parenting in uh, Senegal. For instance, the ways in which the mom is taken care of after becoming pregnant, the massage, uh, both for the kids and for the mom, you know, uh, how the father is also, the social status of the father is also suddenly, you know, he becomes this uh, this figure um, who can play a role in community. So I think there are good values which can be that parents are in fact the first leaders in public life. So parents are leaders. Parents have a role to play, not only in their own family, but in the community. But at the same time, you would have these other uh, values or how can I say, uh, or gender norms, which would be um, really constraining. For instance, people, everyone <laughs> thinking that they have a right to tell you how you should raise your kid. So it's, a, it's, it's a positive, but at the same time it comes uh, with constraints. So everyone, you know, they say uh, it takes a whole village to raise a kid. So it, it really, uh, it is taken literally, literally. So these type of things, I think, informed our feminist parenting, especially in the, in the, in, during the COVID crisis. We realized that be, being a parent is actually not the sole responsibility of uh, myself as a mom or my dad, uh, Alun, as a father, it was also the role of communities. So we are still in touch with our families uh, via social media, via WhatsApp, and so on. So they still are, they are still playing a role, even if it is in in different uh, in different uh, with uh, using different medium. So there is a strong sense of uh, collectivity, a strong sense of being, becoming, and doing together. So parenting is something that is done. With others, it's not something uh, that one does, uh, uh, you know, in isolation with the rest of the family. Sorry for being long. No, so you write um, in the essay about some of the difficult experiences of grief and anger around parenting that you reflect on as both deeply personal as well as structural. What what has parenting taught you about the many ways that social reproduction is devalued and marginalized, both um, by the academy and by governments? Well, uh, I think that would really fit uh, the current situation, reflecting about the current situation. Because, uh, as you know, with the COVID crisis, we suddenly realized that all that we held for being normal was, in fact, even our comfort. Everything was based on other uh, institutions, social institutions playing their role. So whether you talk about the nursery or schools, uh, caring systems playing uh, this role and being there. So with this crisis, we realized that actually we, we got it wrong. We got it wrong. We think of parenting as something that only parents do and we don't involve the community. We don't try and, and invest in parenting as a, as, a, as a terror for social transformation. So it's not just uh, something. Families are communities. So if we, if we understand it this way, we understand the need that we have 
the urge that we have to repoliticize parenting because the the it can be transformative having raising a child to be anti-racist raising a child to be um, you know anti-sexist raising a child to be to be caring to be loving i think would also reflect in more empathetic and more um you know societies that are that consider more the value of radical solidarities so i think that's what uh, this crisis have told me that you can't social reproduction is the old activities involved around giving life should really uh, be reconsidered and given more value because we are realizing that putting profit before people is just useless and meaningless and potentially harmful so caring and parenting are, are two serious businesses to be left to so, to, to parents and uh, carers alone and when i talk about repoliticizing parenting it means also recognizing that policies or policy making is not neutral it has uh, consequences far beyond the, whether we, whether they, these are economic policies uh, they have social re- repercussions so i think we need to value this more we need to have an intersectional approach to policy making have this uh, acknowledging that this will have an effect on gender on race on ability on uh, on you know who on the well-being of people so for me talking about social reproduction in the con- social uh, in the con- current context is political it means uh reconsidering the personal really as political it is not personal parenting is not a personal business and also reconsider and also reconsidering the the political as personal so i think we need to really uh as a as a scholar activist as i like to call myself we need to reconcile both sides of activism and critical thinking and also translate that translate that into our our feminist practice and that's something that you've uh, written about more uh, in a recent piece that's on coronatimes.net. So I'll encourage listeners to um, look that up. Mm-hmm. Um, next, we'll hear from th- some of the contributors to the collection. But before we do that, Rama, can you tell us about some of the other projects that you're currently working on? Yes, I think um, I would like to tell a few words first about the contributors. We have so many uh, rich perspectives on parenting that I think one lesson that we learned is that there is no there is no one side fits all approach to parenting that uh, the ways in which um, African feminisms or African epistemologies and methodologies inform this work has taught us that we need to cure parenting parenting is not only uh, for heter- heterosexual parents it's not only for parents who from middle class it's really acknowledging that there are single parents that there are uh, you know uh, people who are parents but have not given birth in a, a literally have not given birth but have chosen to adopt have fostered kids have uh, you know uh, i think uh, uh, patricia il collins has talked about it 
mothering the mind, even in the academia, as an academic, as a program director, you come to to academia with uh, mentoring uh, and other pastoral responsibilities. So thinking about parenting with those 29 parents, some of whom are queer, some of whom are single parents, some of whom are children of, of, uh, of feminists, some of whom uh, have chosen to parent alone uh, after, um, yeah, after various life episodes, some of whom have lost children. So thinking about what it means to still be a parent after you have lost a kid. So I think that's all, that's the diversity and the variety of perspectives that we are bringing in, um, that we are sharing with the world. And I think it was um, really worthwhile. And Andrea O'Reilly and Demeter Kress have accepted to publish this work. And I think they should be acknowledged for that. So the, the project I'm working on right now are more to do with uh, international development. So trying to decolonize, I think it's a very uh, and uh, it's a very ambitious project. But uh, yes, we are forming a study group on decolonizing international development. But I think that's just a side activity. Uh, currently, I'm more focusing on academic uh, publications on uh, agrarian, feminist agrarian political economy. Well, I look forward to seeing those and. Um... Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you so much, Jacob. We're now joined by Françoise Moutoudoué to discuss her essay, Lessons on Feminist Parenting from My Non-Feminist Mother. Françoise, welcome to New Books in Anthropology. Thanks for having me. So one of the strands running through the book is the autobiographical nature of the reflections on feminist parenting, and your chapter illustrates this clearly. Um, but before we really delve into the essay itself, can you tell us a bit about your background and some of the feminist projects that you've been involved in? Sure. Um, so I am uh, from Cameroon, and I'm also French. I currently live in uh, in Morocco, having lived in many other places. So I find myself being uh, uh, finding it difficult to find the place that I call home. Uh, but I am definitely uh, African. It's, Africa is my home. Um, and uh, I am a feminist activist. Uh, I have been uh, working in the NGO sector in different roles uh, and uh, currently working as a, as a consultant, uh, expert on gender and social justice. Uh, and I am uh, the founder and I manage an initiative called EYALA, which means words. Uh, in Douala, uh, the language uh, from Cameroon. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a feminist um, platform where I give uh, voice and space for discussions and connection for, Afri- from, uh, for African feminists, sorry, from across the continent. But I'm happy to say more about that. Great. So, so your, your contribution to um, feminist parenting is called Lessons on Feminist Parenting from My Non-Feminist Mother. So can you say a bit about what feminism meant to your mother and how she imparted that to you? You know, it's so interesting because I don't think I've ever even heard my mother use the word feminist, uh, if not to say she's, she's not a feminist. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think that uh, my, my mother ever, you know, considered herself part of the movement. Um, as I joined the movement, I did start asking, uh, asking her questions about that. And 
she was kind of taken aback that I would even consider her to be a feminist, uh, which is very interesting because she is um, the starting point of my feminist journey for sure. And uh, something I mentioned in the in the essay is how she like was telling me, you have to be independent. So go to school so you can gain your autonomy and especially financial autonomy for men. And for her, that was, you know, uh, very progressive, uh, given where she's coming from, what kind of family she's coming from, the kind of environment she grew up in, etc. Uh, and and that was definitely my entry point into feminism. Um, but for me, uh, I would say that I I built on that. I built on her obsession for uh, independence and autonomy for women, uh, but mm-hmm. also I built on her. Heart. She had a really kind, uh, uh, service-oriented life, and she said, "Sorry, I say hard. She's still alive. She's still like that, so I shouldn't say hard." Um, but yes, she's um, she's somebody who taught me to recognize my privilege very early on, uh, and also that that privilege was not the way things should be. So I should make sure that what I have as a privilege must become a right for everybody. So that's really infused all of the things I do currently as a feminist, as an activist, as a person, and as a parent, for sure. So given given the way that you th- you say she embodies so many of these values that you identify as feminist, do you think this kind of suggests a difference in the generational meaning of feminism for African women between between you and her? I think so. And in the case of my mother, I also think that um, she's not somebody who was looking at uh, the theory of things, you know? So she wasn't looking at things from a theoretical angle. I don't think that she was reading feminist books. Uh, she was somebody who was going out trying to live her life. Um, and it's only, you know, when... I think it's if you pay attention to the theories, when you know the theory, the theory, unfortunately, doesn't come to you, especially not when it comes to uh, feminist theory. Uh, so for her, it was really a matter of being her best... Uh, self, but also being the best parent for daughters. She has a lot of daughters. And for for her, it was really like, I want to make sure they don't make some of the mistakes I've made or I've seen others make. And I want them to have choice. And she was really strong on that. You need to build um, your, cap- your your capacity to, to choose for yourself. Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much what I would say about that. One of the the key ideas that you put forward in the essay is this idea to accept or even embrace imperfection. So can you say a bit about how you learned that lesson and why it was such a hard one to learn and to apply to your everyday parenting? Sure. Well, it's true that uh, one of the things that uh, my mother passed on to me was this um, obsession for perfection. Uh, because I had so much, that there was so much at stake, even in terms of education, you have to be the best, you know. I have to say it also comes from um, uh, living, I left, I lived a part of my my uh, teenagehood and uh, my early adult years uh, in France as a, as a African woman, a black woman. And, and it, I was definitely part of the, that generation of uh, young women to whom it was told uh, you have to work five times as hard as everybody else to get half as much. You know, like that that narrative is something that I was really ingrained. So um, 
that that strive for control is something that I grew up with and that my mother also uh, passed on to me. But what I realized uh, over time is that it's just it's just impossible, <laughs> first of all. So I had to let go. It took me a lot to learn, a lot of pain, a lot of tiredness, burnout, uh, work-wise. But also, I think having kids is was really a big part of that uh, because when you realize you can't control your children, you can't control them at all. You are kind of a gateway for for them to join this life. And all you can do is try and guide them, support them, but you cannot control them. So you have to let go. Um, of what you think uh, they must become and you just have to equip them uh, with what you believe uh, they need to make their own decisions and for me that has been very much uh, infusing some feminist principles and values uh, by talking to them about them but also by trying to embody them because at the end of the day they emulate what they see. So do you do you think then that, that feminism was part of the the creation of that drive towards perfection or was it something that helped you to critique and step away from that or maybe absolutely, a bit of both? Absolutely helped me critique. It really helped me critique. Um, it really also helped me uh, realize that uh, I think feminism doesn't only celebrate the women who come across as perfect. For me, cele- uh, celebrating myself as who I am now, uh, loving myself and for uh, not just me, but all women, for us to love ourselves where we are, not where we are supposed to be, for me, is very much part of being, uh, of living your life the feminist way, if I may say so. So uh, that, that strive for perfection is something that really feminism helped me not get rid of completely because it's so ingrained, but it's definitely helping me every day. You say, say also that uh, teaching freedom is at the heart of your parenting. So can you say a bit about what you mean by that? And maybe what's what's the difference between freedom and the kind of the idea of independence that your mother defined? Right. So my mother was very keen on telling me you have to you have different options. There are not that many of them. So, for example, like you don't have a choice whether or not you want to be married. For example, for my mom, it was obvious, like, you know, of course you're going to be married. Of course you're going to have children, but you need to gain a little bit of um, of autonomy within that system uh, so that if, so when you're married, not if, but when you're married, you know, she would specifically say, if your husband, if your husband is not like nice and he wants to put you out of the house you say no you get out of the house because it's my house too you know this is the kind of stuff that she would say what i'm saying in the essay is that what i want to pass on to my children is the freedom from the um the idea that they need to fit into uh, a narrow mold or a narrow system you know like this the freedom to critique the system to remove themselves from it to be whoever they want to love whoever they want, uh, you know, uh, to to decide to get married or not, to decide to have children or not. Like for me, freedom is more than that autonomy because freedom is about questioning the system instead of trying to fit within it. If that makes sense. Mm. One of, one of the other striking lines in in the essay is uh, the Cameroons Cameroonian saying that you quote that uh, impossible is not Cameroonian. Can you explain a bit about what that idea means and, and how that's shaped your thinking about parenting and feminism? Yeah, it's, it's interesting you picked up on that. There's this saying, uh, yes, we, we say that a lot. You hear that all the time on the street, you know, like 
we can do anything, you know. Impossible n'est pas camerounais. It's like, um, uh, you know, things things are hard. Uh, life is difficult, uh, but nothing is out of reach. You know, you can you can find your way through things. You can, you know, hustle your way through anything. And honestly, the Cameroonian people has been thrown a lot of stuff to hustle their way out of, you know, if that makes sense. Um, and so for me, I heard that all the time. And that made me think uh, in a way very early on that there's always a way out. Uh, so I, even as I heard some of those messages about, you know, uh, you have to fit in that system. I kept thinking, but is I'm Cameroonian and impossible is not Cameroonian. There's a way out. So the things that I would observe, especially I was very keen as a child. Um, I had a keen eye for injustice. I just I would see it so clearly. Uh, I was not uh, on the on the, on the bad side of it. Let me say I didn't suffer much from injustice. I was very uh, lucky and privileged in that way. But I just couldn't help seeing it because my mom would keep pointing it out to me, saying the privileges that you have, you didn't earn them. And there's no difference between you, as you are going to school this morning, and your cousin you are passing by who's uh, sweeping the front of the house and is not going to go to school. You didn't deserve this, and she didn't deserve it either. So I had that eye, and I was just like, kept thinking, there is always another way. And that's that saying for me. Uh, it's it really built me in that way uh, to, to say, you know, it's not just about hustling, getting money, you know, but it's also changing the system, even for that. Impossible is not Cameroonian. That's a, yeah, that's a really powerful, I think, feminist reading of that saying that sort of emphasizes there's a different way and it's not just about individual resilience and individual overcoming, but that another, there are, another possibility of arranging things is a very feminist way of taking that. So I think that's a very powerful um, way of, of stating it. Right, thanks. Um, before, thanks for taking the time to talk. Before we go, I um, wonder if you'd like to discuss a bit of the work that you're currently involved in. You're, as you mentioned, you're the founder of the blog Iyala. So can you say a bit about that project and some of the conversations that you're hosting there? Sure. So Iyala is, um, is a platform, not just a blog. It includes a, a blog where I give uh, space for African feminists in all their diversity um, to come and have the conversations they are not often given the space to have. So a lot of the time, African feminists are asked to perform, show their expertise on a specific issue. And so they're either given two minutes by CNN or any other news uh, outlet to, to make a point, or they're given 10 minutes at a, at a conference uh, to, you know, like to develop on this particular issue. But when African feminists are asked to talk about their journeys, uh, what what feminism means to them, how they embody their feminist values on a day-to-day. These conversations I, I was just, you know, yearning for. And so I created a space for it uh, because I couldn't find it anywhere. And so it's a space where I do interviews. It's a bilingual space, French and English, uh, for African feminists to just talk about their journeys, their lives, the, what keeps them up at night, etc. And then on the other side, uh, it also is uh, a platform that offers physical spaces uh, that I call sister circles, uh, where African feminists come together and have heart-to-heart conversations about the same issues. Uh, so it's space for learning from each other, it's space for, um, for supporting each other, 
uh, and it, these are really powerful, powerfully vulnerable spaces of sisterhood, which I believe is so critical, not just because uh, we are working in the same space, so we happen to you know come together, but because without the sisterhood, we don't have the we don't have as much power to tackle uh, the patriarchy. Thanks. It's a, it's a really powerful um, platform. I've been reading it a lot this week and would encourage all listeners to check out the link that will be in the podcast description. Um, so thanks thanks again for joining us. Thanks for taking the time to talk. It was a pleasure to read your essay and, and to learn about all the work that you've been doing. Thank you so much, Jacob. I hope uh, um, people will enjoy this book and read it because I really think there's a lot to learn, even from the for non-parents. I really enjoyed reading all the contributions. Thank you for giving Likewise. this book some visibility. Thank you too. Bye. Bye. We're now joined by writer and activist Sadaf Khan, author of the chapter Growing into Motherhood. Sadaf, welcome to the New Books in Anthropology. Thank you, Jacob. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we discuss your contribution to the book, can you tell us a bit about your background and work in journalism and advocacy? So I have a fractured identity, I would say. I have started my career as a journalist, but uh, moved on to advocacy around uh, media and internet policies. And within that, um, I do a lot of work around freedom of expression, uh, making the internet a safer space for um, everyone. So yeah, that that's um, where I'm working at right now. And the overall arch of your chapter then deals with how motherhood has changed your understanding of feminism. So to start off, can you describe what feminism meant to you early in your life and how you came to understand yourself and the world in feminist terms? I come from a very um, lower middle class background in a country that's extremely conservative and traditional in its approach. So it wasn't until much later in my life um, that I was exposed to ideals that now I consider as feminist. I grew up watching a mother who took on very traditional roles, who took care of her children, um, and then who suffered a lot when you know, my father passed away, leaving my mom with five children. She had had no experience of um, finances, how to manage, um, you know, she had no financial independence and she hadn't worked a day uh, in her life. So for me, feminism was forced um, in a sense. Um, it was traumatic because it was the circumstances in which we were thrown at that forced me to see how unfair um, and how debilitating the system is in which women are completely dependent on men um, and then they're completely dependent on society to survive um, and not given any skills to do so where you know when they face with situation like this it was very personal awakening to feminism then i read about it and then um as a young person who was also angry about whatever was happening my initial feminism was also very performative it was very vocal so it was about confrontation um yeah but that has changed over time Who were some of your early feminist role models then and what did they represent to you? What kind of, what vision of feminism did they embody and, and manifest? So as I said, I, my introduction to feminism wasn't very traditional. Um, who I loved was reading the writers, um, Emily Dickinson. Um, and, you know, uh, just reading literature and seeing women who were writing constantly and making their space 
in an industry that was male dominated that was both my escape and that was actually what started me towards writing this so um i would definitely say emily dickinson the rest would be more personal role models women who were who i was seeing around myself um my mom and how she rose to that challenge um some politicians within pakistan who who were challenging uh who were challenging the hypermasculine nature of politics itself so it was a very hodgepodge group of women who were inspiring me in different ways and who i was also questioning in different ways so i can't say there was any one person who i completely idealized in that sense um but i took inspiration from different things different people was doing um at the time when i was going through my own feminist uh, awakening i would say uh, it was the same time when benazir bhutto was being elected the prime minister and i went on to see her doing some amazing things and i also went on to see her confirming to some of the ideals that produce that hypermasculinity um hegemonic nationalist narrative so it was also a conflict on how you know the same people were embodying two very different kind of philosophies in themselves um and then how everybody else was getting getting affected by by this contradiction in their actions at some point and so you, your um your contribution to the book is called growing into motherhood and it really deals with the kind of transformative effects that this experience has had um on on you on your identity and your thinking so can you say a bit about the ways um the way in which you write about how pregnancy threatened your sense of self and what conflict this um, experience engendered and, and how you navigated that. Um, yeah, so essentially because feminism was very performative in the sense that um, I, I was surrounded by women and I was surrounded by feminists who were very angry uh, and for whom traditional gender roles themselves were um, and still are um, always a threat in all notions. So, you know, as a pregnant woman, when you are essentially performing something that is the most traditional of traditional things you can do, um, and also, you know, being in a space where you don't know whether pregnancy is going to, how it is going to affect your career, how is it going to, to affect your growth um all those conflicts kind of threatened my sense of where i was going at uh i pushed off pregnancy for a very long time i was married for 8 years uh, before when i had my first child and that's like completely unheard of in pakistan at least it's it's not uh, something that people do so it's not that this came as a shock to me it was something i was scared of before i made the choice to conceive and become pregnant um but yeah but i didn't expect it to manifest in that way because there was also this joy and um at the same time i was being told by multiple sources and multiple people and in all the feminist collective everybody was ranting, ranting about um you know how motherhood is an unfair burden on, on women and uh, even though a lot of discourses about what roles do fathers play but in the end it was pretty obvious that motherhood was something that holds women back um and even if they excel at their careers and they excel at doing everything they are essentially taking on a lot of burden that they should not have had to take alone so all this there was a lot of fear and there was also a lot of confusion even about the joy i was feeling i didn't know if i were a good feminist 
for wanting to do some of the things that I did. I didn't know if I if I was a good feminist, and you know, even buying clothes. There, there's feminism is inherently you know also anti-capitalist for me. Um, so falling for those notions, looking at blogs with a very traditional and very glamorized notion of motherhood was being presented and enjoying reading those kind of things um, themselves and, you know, having this urge to nest that I didn't know how to fit that joy and that side of the, that maternal feeling even um, within the feminist ideal that I had built up for myself, which was of a woman who was constantly... Um, in a resistance mode and who's constantly defying and denying and, you know, acting against all the notions and norms that uh, are inherently pushing women in very traditionalist roles and in which they often lose who they are. So, yeah, I think one source of conflict was external, but even internally, um, I'm somebody, I'm very career driven. I have some, I'm somebody who's always defined myself, you know, as who I am what I'm doing, that, that that has been my source of reference. But then suddenly this is a role that is not something that I'm doing, but it's something that's happening to me. I, I'm having a child. So who am I then? Like, how do I actually define who I am? I am? That's something I couldn't answer in the beginning. And um, that, that really threatened uh, how I felt about myself. So you said that, um, that, yeah, this experience was a challenge to your sense of yourself as a feminist. Were there any kind of feminist um, thinkers or resources or, or feminist histories or practices that you thought about while you were going through this to help you um, navigate pregnancy and birth and parenting? So unfortunately, that's not what um, I could do at that time because everything that uh, I ended up reading was more about you know um empowering the 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 idea of that superwoman the um the idea of a woman who can do everything and that's what i tried to do initially as well um i wrote the chapter quite a, a couple of years back so i'm at a very different space now but um at that time everything a, a feminist mother that i was conceiving in my mind was somebody who excels at her career and who excels at home and who takes care of the children and um ensures that uh, her spouse is also contributing to it um but what i realized over the years that 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 idea of the superwoman of a mom who balances everything that's also very um difficult to navigate and it doesn't really do women a lot of favors at that time so yeah, at that time, what I was reading was just, I was following, I was looking for inspiration in women who seemed to have done it all, who seemed to have it all. So I was looking at blogs, I was looking at books, I was looking um, at celebrities who seemed to continue to excel in their careers while their kids are thriving. Um, at this point now, I feel that that was the wrong way to go. Uh, that That was something that made me kind of create a much more much more pressures for my own self um, and I made myself I, I pushed myself in a situation where I tried to do everything um, at the same time yeah. yeah it seems like that's one of the important ways that feminism and anti-capitalism really have to work together um, in like the kind of critique of the idea of career feminism that you develop and the kinds of guilt and pressure that this puts on individual women yeah yeah, I think um, this, you know, I had a C-section when I had my first son, but on the seventh day after the surgery, I was back in office and I was very proud of it. And now I think of it, I'm like, why did I do that? Um, 
you know that that's not what a strong woman should have looked like uh but the thing is when i was doing that I, everybody else on my team the younger girls they were also feeling very inspired and now i feel very guilty about having inspired them by an act that is not actually inherently feminist it's it's just um, another way as women are pushing themselves more than they should be in the closing paragraphs of your essay you reflect on what it's like doing feminist parenting in a very non-feminist world. So can you describe a bit some of the everyday challenges this has involved for you and what it's meant for your uh, growth into motherhood? Yeah, so um, I think one of the very important elements of being able to do feminist parenting is having a spouse, a partner who's also a feminist. Um, And um, I think one of the very prominent experiences that I faced um, are jokes about how that might be emasculating. Uh, for my husband then obviously there are, I have a son and a daughter and uh, both of them are exposed to um, ideas that I don't really want to instill on them some simple things like blue is for girls and blue is for boys and pink is for girls or um, boys don't cry things that our elders our communities are constantly saying um, without giving much thought to what, what they and what they mean and how they would affect children eventually um and even though this looks seems like a small thing but if you start challenging them then you find yourself correcting people who are sometimes in position of power sometimes um they're adults sometimes they are you know the, the the carers at the daycare center and you don't want to really confront them on everything um but in the end it is it does become a lot of confrontation because even on these little things you have to have a discussion you can't just say don't say this to my child you have to um at least that's what I've been trying to do. If if people are closer to me, then I, I do try to explain why I'm saying what I'm saying. Um, and then, um, yeah, it's sometimes it goes okay. Sometimes people look at me like I'm crazy. Um, but uh, it is very difficult. If, if you go shopping, if you um, even look for books, you go to a bookstore, you'll see aisles which have books for the little girls and aisles with books for little boys. And, um, explaining to kids who are this young why these cl- these classifications don't matter or shouldn't matter, um, and also helping them fit in an environment like in their daycares they haven't gone to school yet, um, but I see these segregations happening and um, my daughter being told uh, to sit on the swing while the boys are playing football for example, um, so these are very these are small conversations but these are conversations that i find myself consistently um you know i am i have had to have these conversations endlessly and it becomes exhausting a bit and then you also um you know you you feel like uh this is not a this is perhaps not the most productive way to do it. One of the earliest issues that I faced, we um, we live in a Muslim country, and I wrote about it in the chapter as well as the decision around circumcision. Um, and I personally feel that it's it's a horrible violation of, uh, you know, a child's own agency over his body. Uh, but the tradition is to do it before the child turns a month old. And, um, because I did fear what would happen if, you know, the, this is not just culture, religion is involved. And um, you can't defy these notions without attracting a significant amount um, of not just criticism, but potentially harm as well to yourself, to your child. So these are 
things that we navigate through and um yeah sometimes it's just frustrating but sometimes it can also be dangerous and you find yourself making decisions that you ideally know you shouldn't be making so um finally i just wanted to ask a bit about the uh, coronavirus pandemic and the way that that's made the politics of parenting visible in a whole host of new ways um so could you can I ask about how the pandemic and the social response to it has impacted your thinking about parenting and how feminist politics have informed the way you've understood and navigated this crisis? Yes, I think uh, because we are, um, most of us don't have the support systems we had um, when things were open, we are not able to send our children to daycare um, or even have uh, support at home, even family members are not you know, meeting in in the same way. It's really, really difficult to navigate that space where you have a child um, all day long and you're also working from home. Um, I've seen a lot of women in my circle leave their jobs because doing these two things together simultaneously has become really difficult, even though their husbands are also working from home. But it is automatically assumed that it's the women's duty to keep the children um, away from the workspace, even though she might have work herself as well. But what I would like to talk about is the guilt that I see manifesting more in mothers than in fathers. Uh, A lot of us right now are making decisions, especially, let's say, regarding screen time. How much screen time do you allow your child and how much do you have to allow now? Um, while you are stuck at home and you have a ton of work to do and we, even though um, at times it becomes a situation where you do have no choice but I see women feeling so much more guilty about exposing their children to screens or um, leaving them unattended for a longer period of time than they would ideally want and um, I feel that fathers have made that transition more easily uh, a, at least in Pakistan more because um, you know they, they have never been as primary caregivers so even if something is going wrong and something needs to be worked out um, they don't see themselves as responsible uh, for that and even if they're playing a role I'm seeing a lot of at least um, in our circles I'm seeing a lot of videos being heard about how amazing fathers are for helping the children eat breakfast for example um, or taking care of the child while the wife is on um, a zoom meeting um, and there's so much celebration around uh, whatever little role most of the fathers have started to play. I, I get it. It's new for them. It's nice that they're doing it. Um, but the kind of allocates that they're getting and the kind of celebration around what's happening, it, it kind of demonstrates um, how, you know, how these two roles are so seen so differently, even in households that are considered feminist. Um, you know, the father is seen as a feminist because just because he is helping out with the kids, even though it should be feminist parenting, not feminist mothering. Um, so I think there is there is a lot to be said about you know the the feelings that in that are instilled and the, the, that women are conditioned to feel about their responsibility to their family, um, and the responsibility to their children. Um, and while the same things are not. Men, males' responsibility is essentially just bringing in money, and I think that needs to change. And um, this pandemic has, you know, brought to home the point that this does need to be changed. This is not a model that's going to be sustainable for uh, in a future where most people will need to work. 
So I hope that this is making more people think around it. Uh, one of the things that I've been seeing constantly, the discourse around mothering in this, another thing that it has brought to light is this discourse on uh, seeing motherhood as unpaid work. And people have been talking about, you know, why it's, uh, it's, it's not given any word because it's unpaid work. I slightly differ on that point. I don't agree with the idea that a work can only be worth Thanks, Sadaf, for taking the time to talk today. Before you go, can you tell us about any of the projects you're currently working on you'd like our listeners to know about? So, um, because the pandemic has essentially resulted in a virtual shift, what I'm working on right now has to do with digital gender divide. And Pakistan, unfortunately, is one of the countries with the highest number of you know digital gender divide in the world. Um, what we are seeing specifically and what I'm working on specifically are issues um, of surveillance by intimate partners, by families, the lack of access women have to digital technology, to internet. Um, we're looking at the impact it has had on their livelihoods and on the education of students. Um, in a similar vein, we have, what we are seeing in Pakistan right now is a sudden um, you know, resurgence of the Times Up, Up movement. Um, and a lot of young girls from schools and colleges as young as 11, 12 have been um, coming out on social media talking about the harassment they have faced uh, in schools. So that's something that we are very closely looking at and trying to figure out how to best support um, these students. Uh, another thing that's happening again in the digital realm uh, is the harassment and abuse of female teachers and um, young students while they're taking their online classes. Uh, so these the, these are the areas that connect to our work on the on getting more women online and creating safe, safe spaces for women online. Um, the last project that I talk about is a very interesting research that I'm currently conducting, which looks at hypermasculine narratives and how hegemonic narratives of masculinity have seeped into our policy discourses and how it has affected um, policy making and the legal system in Pakistan. And how the technology itself is um, challenging uh, the notions that have been embedded in our culture and in our social values um, for decades now. So it's it's a very interesting time. It's frustrating, but it's also a very interesting time for anybody who's doing gender-related work in Pakistan because a lot of things are happening. A lot of young people are coming forward and trying to take their space, making their voices heard. Um, and the, the discourse that has traditionally been simply on oppression and violence of uh, against women in Pakistan, that's shifting to identities and the politics of power um, and the idea of agency for women. So that's, this is a huge shift uh, in the discourse of the feminist movements in Pakistan. And um, I feel good about it. I feel that there's a lot of radicalization and there's a lot of hate speech against these women. Um, but the fact that that it's getting radical and the polarization is happening um, also shows me that more and more people are collecting uh, on the side that wants to talk about identity and how it ends up affecting um, politics and policy of the country. And where might people go to uh, follow the research that you're doing? Um, it's yet to be launched, but it will be uploaded on digitalrightsmonitor.pk. Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for taking the time to talk and for sharing all of the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you.
We're now joined by musician and activist Katie, who's on the line from Dhaka. Katie, welcome to New Books in Anthropology. Thank you, Jacob. Um, before we talk about your chapter, can you tell us about your background and your experiences with feminism as a political movement in Senegal? Um, well, um, I'm, I'm soon going to be 47, um, but I'm in the music uh, industry, primarily in Senegal, since uh, more than 20 years now. Uh, I've been one of the uh, pioneers of uh, hip-hop here which is still a movement in Senegal. We still call it a movement because there is this whole ideology thing behind Senegalese hip-hop still, which is very um, political, socially oriented. Um, And I must say that it's mainly hip-hop um, which opened my eyes to um, political, social issues. Um, And it's through the music I learned about um, all of the um, all of the issues I'm, I'm, I'm fighting against today. So, yeah, um, I'm primarily from the from the hip hop scene, um, but more and more now, um, um, I'm open to um, working with other people who are from different areas, colors, um, or journalists. Um, and uh, combining the two is a, is, is a really great tool for me since music um, is really um, helping um, establish a dialogue with people because come they, first they come for the music and then we go over and, and have a real chance to talk about music. So basically um, all of the projects I'm working on um, are somehow related to music. Um, my my relation to feminism, I think, started with my family um, because I was mainly raised by women, my, my mother and my sisters. Um, and I've grown seeing their struggle, um, having talks with them, um, talking deeply with them, um, not just... Um, superficial talks, and it opened my eyes to um, the struggles of women here. And my mom was was really um, some a strong woman, um, and I think her whole life, her divorces, because she's been married uh, to different men, um, and having those talks with her always showed me how she wanted to respect, how she wanted to, um, to change the structure of, of society here for women. Um, she didn't live long enough to, to, to make it happen, but it definitely changed me having those discussions with her. Um, cause she said no a lot. She, asked for respect a lot from the man she married. Um, the reasons behind her divorce were most of the times linked to the respect, respect she demanded. And so for me, um, trying to have those dialogues with men mainly um, uh, nowadays is, is definitely linked to how my mother, um, what my mother told me or what I've learned from my mother. Uh, what's it like having those conversations now through hip hop, um, particularly with with men? 
um, it's difficult. It's difficult um, because I guess um, when 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 you grow up in a society um, which is very conservative, and that is that is something really strange because Senegalese society is at the same time really open to new things. Um, but you realize that um, there is a certain limit. Um, there is a core structure that people don't want to change. Um, and having having those discussions through hip-hop is um, sometimes uh, you marginalize yourself. Um, you get accused of um, trying to bring in ways of life that are not ours. Um, you get accused of collaborating with the West. Um, but I'm convinced that we need those changes, not only um, when it comes to gender, when it comes to um, uh, gender relations, but there are lots of changes we need. And my point very often is um, we don't need to have um, influence coming from outside to discuss things, even if um, we were just among ourselves, um, change would, would always need to happen. And we just can't say no um, because um, we want to leave the status quo. Um, we don't want to change uh, the way our grandfathers and our ancestors lived. We have to have also our own contribution. We have to um, think about our society, ways to make it better, ways to make everyone um, feel comfortable at ease in our society. Um, but um, I think to answer, to answer your question briefly, you get marginalized whenever you have tried to have those discussions about um, gender relations, gender um, or, or um, the power structure um, behind genders. Um, you, you, you definitely get marginalized because people feel that there's nothing they need to change. They feel that it's the West pushing those concepts. You write in, in your chapter that it's um, even if you have these kind of ideas, it can be much more difficult to break to break those patterns of thought um, that have kind of been embedded in society and and whose manifestations are hidden in the most innocuous actions of everyday life. Uh, that's a line from from your chapter. So I'm wondering if you could say a bit about how your own life as a parent has made you reflect on and identify some of these latent modes of thought uh, in everyday actions? Um, I don't know. Uh, let, let's say just, just a um, very common example, cooking. Um, I've been cooking for a long time for myself and for my family. And my family didn't know, my sisters didn't know, for example, that I could cook. And uh, the first time my sister came home and she found me in the kitchen, she was like almost crying. What are you doing in the kitchen? And I'm talking about someone because I told you that um, my sisters, my, my mother were the first one to really introduce me to um, the effects or how they feel about 
um, the way society is treating them. So they are very aware of um, gender roles, of um, the gender power structure. They are very aware of it. But still, finding me in the kitchen cooking was shocked her. You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to explain things the most basic ways. Like, look, um, I'm not handicapped. I'm, I'm, it's a pleasure for me to cook. I like to cook, give it to my daughter and really see her appreciate the food. But still, there is, there's, there's something they can't integrate. And that's why it's difficult having those dialogues, even on social media sometimes when discussing with people, um, talking about, yeah, I cooked this today, I cooked that today. Um, a lot of a lot of women comments are, are like, "But you shouldn't cook." And the only reason they can give you is like, "It's not up to men to cook. Men don't go in the kitchen." So, in that sense, it's really really difficult. And and those are everyday things. Cooking is an everyday thing, um, but still. Um, even at that low level, they people want to keep things the way the way they are. Um, now, when you're talking about um, the um, regarding the law, uh, f- for example, the family laws in Senegal, who's the chief of the family? That is much more complicated, much much more complicated because when laws are about to get passed. You know, changing the status of women in the in Senegalese family. Then you've got like politicians. You've got you've got um, imams uh, from the mosques, from uh, all of them, demonstrating against those changes. That the man is the head of the family. The woman come, comes after. So, yeah. But in everyday life, there are still things that are there that makes it that that make it really difficult to change. Um, this situation regarding regarding women. Mm-hmm. So your chapter is called uh, "What My Mum and My Daughter Taught Me." You yeah. said a bit about what you've learned from your mum. Can you say a bit now about what what you've what you've learned from your daughter? Oh man, it's it's still going on. It's it's not it's not stopping. Um, but I think the main thing the main thing I've learned um, with her is really. Um, to, to to back up and trust her, um, and you know, accept her decisions. And somehow I think even even when she's gonna be she's gonna be twelve tomorrow, um, but even when she was smaller, she's been always fighting um, for me not to be all over her. Um, trying to tell her what to do, how to do things. She's always wanted to show me that she can do things by herself. And I think over time, I've I've learned, I've really learned to to back up and let her do her thing. Um, I think that is the main lesson I learned from her. And today, when I see her, I'm really I'm really happy. Um, the way the way she moves into the world, it's like. She's. I, I, I'm not. I'm not saying that she's not conscious that she's a girl, but she just does things because. Yeah, I want to try them. I can do them, um, 
and and doesn't 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 think in terms of I'm a girl I can't do this uh, or I'm a, I'm a girl I should play with um, with dolls. She, she's definitely not thinking thinking like that, and that is something I really like. And yeah, now I'm at a I'm I'm at a moment where um, she's becoming an adolescent, and I guess that isn't that's going to be new lessons for me. Um, and I'm and I'm and I'm open to listen to her um, and give help uh, if it's needed. Um, but I think I've really learned to, as a man, not to try to be in control or uh, or shape her. I thought it was really powerful. One of the things that you really draw out from it is you single out listening as really the most important part of feminist parenting. So how did you come to that realization specifically and what, what's that meant in practice? Um, I think I've, I've described, I've described that uh, little anecdote when I, when we were buying shoes and I think it, it, it really came from that moment on um, that I was, it made me aware of how I was not listening how I wanted her to adopt my ideas um, and for her to voice her frustration um, that moment it was really it was really painful for me uh, to, to, to hear my daughter say that about me uh, you always say no to everything I want I've seen something I like but I'm pretty sure you won't like it that was painful for me um, and really Right at the moment, I was like, this is not how I want to raise my daughter. Um, I want her um, to, be, to be, you know, not to do whatever I say. Um, I want her to have her own opinion. I want to respect her own decision, you know. And since I've been, I've been really trying, and, and yeah, there are moments where it, I'm frustrated because... Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very convinced. I'm totally convinced, for example, when she makes certain decisions or when she wants to do certain things that this is a bad idea, you know, but I, but still I got to accept, let her make her mistakes. Um, and then come back, we discuss about, we talked up, we talk about it and somehow her being aware that I'm listening, that I'm accepting, um, makes it easier for her also to accept my suggestion. She's less on the defensive because she knows I'm listening. She knows I, I respect her opinions and her decisions. And I think it's that sort of dynamic we are in right now. So what do you, what would you say is the kind of the big uh, lesson that fathers of sons might take away from this book, Feminist Parenting? Um, I think one of the biggest lessons when you when you go through this book is um, that situations are very different um, because we all describe different relationships, different environments, but um, there are there are certain things which are really common, um, and particularly it is like um, how women um, young girls are treated by our societies um, and 
I think, to, to say it very simply, um, the takeaway is really um, we, should, we should take time to, to, to listen and be aware that our experience is not that of women. Our experience as young boys um, weren't similar to the, spirit, the, the experience of young girls. And therefore, um, we have to listen. We have to listen and acknowledge um, the struggle um, women are going through. I think that is, that is definitely um, the, 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 what should be the takeaway in this, this book. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk. Before you go, can you tell us a bit about any projects that you're currently working on that you'd uh, like our listeners to know about? Well, um, it's not related to, to feminism, but uh, I'm working on a project um, called West African uh, Artist Activism, and I'm training um, artists, some artists and journalists from West Africa, uh, mainly from Senegal, Guinea, and Ghana, um, on art activism, how to use um, their voice, how to um, have actions, but um, mixed with arts, because arts appeals to people's emotions and make um, uh, make it easier to to have a dialogue. And that is part of a of a global project um, with with other artists from and activists from Macedonia. And we had planned to have a meeting in Macedonia by December, but I think now we, we're going to push it back. So um, basically that's what I'm working on for this year and next year. Well, that sounds great. Thank you for sharing and thanks again for taking the time to talk. You're welcome, Jacob. <laughs>